Let's now rewind a little bit to your early years, childhood in the Netherlands, and how you got started as an astronomer, formative influences in your life. Where were you born? I was born in Groningen. And what um, kind of place is that? Northern part of Holland. It's, uh, it, it always feels uh, neglected by The Hague, where, is, where the center of Holland is, as it were. Amsterdam, The Hague, uh, Rotterdam. But uh, I like Groningen. I don't speak the dialect, but uh, I can't understand the word of the dialect. Even and, though you grew up there? Yeah. When I, when I cross over to Friesland, halfway to Leeuwarden, uh, there is Frisian, which is a, a real language, not a dialect. Mm -hmm. Can't understand it at all. Is that because you once could do these things, but you just forgot because you've left the no, place? I know mm -hmm. only one word in Frisian. Father is height. Height. <laughs> okay. So, it's, uh, but anyhow. Uh, Your family was not a science family. No, no, no. My father was, uh, was a government accountant. And, uh, and, uh, and he lived uh, in Groningen uh, happily. Uh, during the war years, it was uh, very difficult times. Great uncertainty, great uncertainty uh, because Holland was occupied by the Nazis from 1940 to 45, and there was always great uncertainty what, what would happen next. I, I make it that you were roughly 11 to 16 in those yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, very formative years. Yes. I was lucky in the sense that I was not 18, because the, the, the Germans... Uh, uh, dictated that uh, that people people of eighteen and older had to work in Germany mm -hmm. simply. When did you choose uh, the course of astronomy in university? I was an amateur for a long time in Groningen, and in retrospect, I re realized that it was easy in the city to uh, to do observations out of out of an upper floor window with a small telescope because. For those years, 1940 to 45, there was a blackout for five solid years, and uh, and and that, I mean, in the current day and age, with all the lights on everywhere, I mean, many young people will not ha hardly know the only thing you see is Jupiter in the sky and the moon. Uh, so. Also, I had an uncle who did, uh, do, did uh, observations of occultations of stars by which their positions uh, can be more accurately determined and so on. Then, um, I remember that in Holland we had these conferences in the summer uh, where all the astronomers in the country come together and uh, spend um, uh, somewhere in the middle of the country, in the Veluwe, north of Arnhem, uh, uh, and all the all the professors, everybody is there in astronomy, and that, that's really nice. Very nice. I I, I met and and uh, and experienced Minard uh, from Utrecht, who uh, 
was a famous expositor of, uh, of astronomy. He did a fantastic job and, uh, and so on. How old were you then and why were you going to these things? Because every, every, every graduate student in astronomy and every astronomer did it. I see. Simple. And then, then at one of these conferences, it so happened that Ort uh, had already apparently uh, noticed me because he invited me to, uh, for graduate study to come to Leiden. Well, tell us now about your relationship with, with Ort. Yes, yes. Jan Oort, uh, who is of course uh, uh, over the world mostly known for the, uh, for the Oort cloud of comets. But as an astronomer in, 19, in the late 1920s, he uh, and Lindblad uh, of uh, Stockholm, Sweden, discovered that the, the, the rotation of the galaxy. And that was immensely important. Jan Oort at that time uh, 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 came up with a little model of the distribution of mass in the galaxy that would do it. But it was a very rough model with steps in it, and uh, and I, in uh, 1959, uh, published a model um, in um, in the Kuiper series of uh, of uh, stars and stars. Stellar systems? Yeah, yeah. stellar system. Mm -hmm. uh, and published it there and, uh, and did a job where, where I had a continuous, uh, continuous change of the density, which was much more realistic. Unfortunately, I used a B magnitude of Oort's that was totally unrealistic. The B constant. Is that what you mean? Constant, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. I used minus ten, and it should, it, it really should be minus, minus fifteen. Minus fifteen, yeah. It yes. simply was not realized at the time. I see. Mm -hmm. And I remember that uh, Jim Gunn was one of the first ones who I think pointed out that we were on the wrong track. <laughs> well, we're a little bit ahead of the story, I think. So you're, it's the early fifties. You're showing up as a grad student at Leiden. Yeah. You come to Ort's attention, yeah. and there's a golden opportunity there, observation-wise, in radio astronomy. And why is that? What had the Dutch just done during the preceding years? The, during the war, Hank van der Hulst, who was a professor at Leiden, he was underwater in hiding during the war because the Germans, because as I mentioned, men over 18 had to be, uh, uh, had to be trans uh, transported to Germany to work for the German effort. So Hank van der Hulst predicted that the that the spin flip of neutral hydrogen should be observable, even though it's, a, I believe, a 
I don't know whether it's a legal term, but it may even be very forbidden. Very forbidden. But, <laughs> but there's a lot of hydrogen. There's a lot of hydrogen, <laughs> right. especially in the plane of the galaxy, mm -hmm. where you look through, through light years. Actually, it's great that it's forbidden, because if it weren't, it, exactly. we couldn't see very far. No, 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 you, you would, yeah. <laughs> it would stop here. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and there that that are these pictures of that colloquium that, that Hank gave, in the college the, 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 where the, the classes are given at Leiden, at the observatory, while he was really in hiding. And there you see these people all beautifully dressed, but middle of the war. Uh, and uh, so Jan Oort went to the, uh, went to the uh, Science Foundation in Holland and got money to, uh, to detect the line. And as I understand it, that was partly your job later. I, I, yeah. Later. Later on. And, and the survey that you got involved in used a leftover German radio telescope, Correct. which had to be refurbished. And, yeah. Correct. So tell us what this German radio telescope was actually doing. Was it mapping? It no, it was receiving radio radiation, but it uh, it it did not have motors. It, it did not. It it had a altimeter mount. And so, how did you actually make it point and take data? You got tables from the people who worked in the in the Rekenkamer at Leiden, which is the computing room mm -hmm. where you have man who actually do all the computing, who for every five minutes gave the position in right, in horizontal coordinates, mm -hmm. what I had to do. Hmm. And then manually so, the telescope yeah, got so, moved? Yeah, yeah so, so I would do it, hmm. then I would do like this and do it like that. Hmm. And um, It must have been very wearing. Wearing. Yes. And, and also very cold. Once I f almost fell off the whole structure when it was icy, ah. I, I, I slipped and uh, could have been killed, mm. wouldn't, wouldn't be sitting here. Mm. Anyhow, uh, but so, uh, and the line was discovered first by Ewing. Harvard. Harvard? Yeah. And then I think uh, at Kotwijk, which was where the dish was, and then in Australia. So, it, um, so everybody got on board, and it was up to, uh, and the first maps soon came out, which showed structure, to call it spiral structure was perhaps somewhat over no overstatement. So you actually got sort of a plum assignment, I think, I'm now reaching back to my graduate student training days, uh -huh. and I seem to recall that the hydrogen inside the solar circle is was, more valuable yeah, was my, was my responsibility. than the hydrogen outside the solar yeah. circle. You got the hydrogen inside the solar circle, yes. and that enabled you to measure a rotation curve all the way out to the solar circle. To the solar circle. Inside. And Am I correct? That was your thesis study, is that right? No. No, that wasn't? 
My thesis was a mass model of the galaxy. Ah, based on those measurements. Yes. Yes, yes I yes, see. Yes, okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now what we're doing here is we're laying the foundation for what is actually your most cited paper, which is called the Schmidt Law, oh. yes. which you published in 1959. And it's known today as a rule that relates surface density of gas to the amount of star formation. So this is a leading question. It seems to me that you, as a result of your thesis work and collaboration, had two sets of data that were brand new in the world. Yeah. One was a mass model for mm -hmm. the galaxy, mostly stars. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then from the hydrogen mapping, a map of the gas surface density right. in the galaxy. That's right. And your paper on the Schmidt Law put that together in a very interesting way. So what were you doing in this paper? How did the idea come to you? I think, I think Sidney Vandenberg before I published the paper wrote a short note saying that with the rate of star formation that you can derive from all these data, that the gas will be depleted in a relatively short time, somewhere between 10 to the 8 and 10 to the 9 years. Was that shocking? It was, uh, it was not, not the case. Not true. It was not true. It was, it was what he forgot to take into account is that when the stars, say, above two, two or three solar mass, go of the main sequence, that they shed their mass, eventually end up as white dwarf, and therefore a large fraction of the original luminosity function of at formation is returned and recycled. Yes, so you were the first to take that backflow into account. That's right, Yes. and, and nobody, nobody had done that. Mm -hmm. As I understand it, that changed the results by some amount, but not by many factors. Yes, but, but what, it, what it essentially also predicted was how the metal abundance should change. And while the prediction was there, it um, turned out never to be easy to actually get that out of the data, independent, as a, as a, as a check on the model. So you put this new data set together and yeah. derived a law for star formation right. that said that the star formation rate goes as the square of the gas surface density. I made it a square at the time. Yeah, it, it landed eventually at 1.35. Based so, on yeah. later work by? Yeah, where on, on galaxies like we discussed where, where Kenny cut uh, I think that 1.35 is, uh, is pretty general. So I'd just like to emphasize in going back and reading that paper, which I did for this interview, that it, it really was, I think, the first paper in astronomy to try to make a global evolutionary model for a galaxy. Correct. Right? Correct, yeah. We start with some gas. Or at least for the solar neighborhood. Well, no, but you used... You use data over a wide range of radii, 
and that was important to your deriving yes. the, the, the yes. exponent of two, yes. to observe that the mass profile in stars is a lot steeper than the mass profile in gas. Exactly. And in order to reconcile yeah. those, you needed that this came out very, naturally. very, very yeah. beautiful yeah. logic, yeah. I think. Right. 